0: This week on the Training Science Podcast, we hear from Runa Talsnes. Now, Runa is a former cross-country skiing athlete, coach, and sports scientist from the world-leading Norwegian program. Runa's worked at the highest level in his sport and has much to offer all endurance listeners. In the podcast, we cover Runa's latest research on a hit that challenges conventional studies on this topic, as he shows that higher training volumes could be just as effective for certain individuals when the load is matched. The chat finishes on his most recent case study on an elite cross country skier's method of return to the highest level after a prolonged period of underperformance and the key factors that were involved in helping to save this athlete's career. Just another fascinating conversation that I know you will appreciate. So without further ado, I now bring you Runa Tausnes. Hello and welcome to the Training Science Podcast. I'm Paul Larson, And I am Martin Buscheit. And we're excited to be your hosts. Together, we're going to be exploring both the science of training and its application in sport. We've
1: spent the last 20 years researching and applying the science at the coalface of high-performance sports. From elite clubs, professional athletes, and Olympic
0: programs but it's going to be here on the Training Science Podcast that we're going to take that experience and provide you with what my colleague Martin likes to call a no-bullshit approach to how we apply the science in the real world. And because the context always matters more than the content. So let's get into today's podcast. I'm here with Runa Talsnes. Runa, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for... Um inviting
0: me great well i, I found you Runa, on the um Oyven's list of 25 contributors to the here and now article that is hot on the internet right now making its rounds and um yeah again i find your profile just fascinating why don't you start by telling us a little bit of, about yourself um your background and you, you know to your current role today
1: yeah I can do that. Um, I'm a Norwegian living in Trondheim uh, in uh, mid-Norway. and uh, Now I'm a researcher or a postdoctor at uh, the Norwegian University of Science and Technology and I'm working at uh, the Center, Center for Elite Sport Research Center. So in the research group uh, uh, where Eivin uh, is uh, our leader and I have uh, been working with endurance training, particularly cross-country skiing and yeah, both looking at the competitive demands, of course, country skiing and what type of training you should perform to, to meet those demands. So I did my PhD over the last uh, three years at uh, Newwood University, finished in January this year. And now I'm uh, at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. And I'm also working a bit in the Norwegian Olympic Federation, a Norwegian top uh, sport center with the exercise uh, uh, testing of uh, endurance athletes mostly so as many Norwegians I have a background from cross-country skiing both as an athlete as uh, also as a coach and um, yeah uh, most of my research has been emphasized towards this uh, fascinating endurance sports uh, sport cross-country skiing so yeah that's a brief background
0: yeah, yeah, no, that's that makes a lot of sense, and uh, I'm assuming Oyvind's on many of your papers, so Oyvind must be a supervisor for you. Oyvind Sandback, of course, was uh, episode five on the Training Science podcast is one of our most popular ones, so it's uh, it's great that you are a um, a student of his, and um, no doubt you'll share some similar philosophies on on different things. Maybe let's just kick back. Again, I love the fact that you're in that middle space. That's what we will cover here, your athlete, coach, scientist, uh, an embedded scientist within the highest program in your country in cross-country skiing. So one of the work I guess that you've done, maybe just start for the listener on where your your research interest started uh, on that series of of studies that we will go through today. How did that all come about when you're an athlete coach yourself? When you're lay, you know, looking at the literature, how did that all sort of come about?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Adrian. Uh, mean, was my supervisor both at uh, the bachelor, I think, and also the master, and also PhD. So when I started studying sports science and exercise physiology, my main goal was to become a coach, and I was working as a coach. I'd also done that after after uh, studying, but uh, also. At the time, I met Evin, and also I developed uh, interest for more designs uh, and research part of uh, both cross-country skiing, uh, endurance training in general, exercise physiology, and uh, yeah, or um, research in my PhD was um, a bit uh, directed towards this talent transfer or athlete transfer of summer endurance athletes from china actually that um over um, yeah one one and a half year uh trained to become cross-country skiers so i also did some studies on that and after that i performed more typical research on endurance training and some training intervention studies so i think uh, two of four uh, articles in my phd was um, uh, this um, quite uh, large training intervention study on uh, union cross-country skiers. So, yeah, investigating both the short and more uh, subsequent or long-term effects of different um, emphasize on training intensity and um, progression in training though by
0: uh,
1: either adopting uh, more low intensity training or, or high-intensity training. So that was uh, um, yeah, uh, some studies that I've done.
0: Yes, yeah, perfect. I think that yeah, that sets up the focus of the conversation just perfectly. I'll, I mean, it's interesting that I had a similar when I was looking at the lay of the land. Uh, what is it? Twenty years ago, I was kind of in a similar sort of boat. And you, I'm sure you've come across a few of my studies along the way on high intensity interval training and um, intensity versus volume. And again, when I was doing my PhD we didn't have the the breadth and depth of studies that are I- existing today and it was just a the the idea was and the the question i guess that i looked to try to answer is you know when you add high intensity interval training into the already established aerobic base of an athlete's training do we see an improvement in performance of course everyone's listening to this right now is going well duh of course of course you see that right because there's been 50 studies or 100 studies that have sort of shown that and yeah again that so that's that was the gist of my phd and studies is showing an increase in vo2 max an increase in uh, high intensity performance but you've kind of again when i'm looking at some of these studies that you've done Rune, you're not necessarily sort of showing that in this cohort large cohort of cross-country skiers i see you know you're by the looks of it, in this this w- one of the studies that's been published, you're seeing an in improvement in VO2 max. But when you're in a, in a rant, maybe talk us through the study that you're doing, the one that I'm I'm referring to.
1: Yeah, interesting that you say that. It, um, it was two two different reasons that were a part of our motivation for doing this, and one was that there exists a lot of studies um, emphasizing the importance of high intensity training for endurance. Adaptations and endurance performance. And uh, yeah, it can be argued that some of these studies are a bit uh, artificial in the way that they are um, conducted because you match different training intensities using, uh, using an iso-energetic uh, method of matching, which we think is a bit different to how endurance act. it's actually trained and how they uh, perceive different training uh, loads and training intensities. And another part of it is that uh, most of these training intervention studies is over short time periods. It's four weeks, six weeks, maybe 10 or 12 weeks. And uh, we don't know that much about uh, like more subsequent effects and how the adaptations of adopting these uh, training intensity distributions or focus uh, develops endurance performance over longer uh time how uh, long you time so that was two of the uh, main reasons for conducting these, these studies
0: that is super cool and before i get into i just want to dive into why that might be the case but maybe maybe first of all provide the what you did and what you found in that in that key study when yeah, you can do that
1: um briefly try to summarize it it was um an eight-week typical training intervention or uh, training intensification study. So following an eight-week baseline or pre-intervention period, we had, I think, around 50 university cross country skiers that were allocated into two different intervention groups. So one group uh, increasing the emphasis of high-intensity training and the other group uh, increasing the emphasis on low-intensity training. An increase in a progression in training load were matched by the two uh, between the two groups by using like a trink uh, calculation score and uh, over the 8 week intervention period we saw that both groups improved their performance uh, quite well but there were only improvements in physiological adaptations or VO2max uh, in the group emphasizing high intensity training and there were also tendencies of uh, more performance improvement or uh, more of the athletes in the high-intensity group having a large response. So still there were no statistical uh, significant differences between the groups in performance adaptations. So although high-intensity training uh, elicited more uh, physiological adaptations and max, there were no between-group differences in performance adaptations after eight weeks.
0: And what were the performance uh, metrics that you used?
1: Yeah, we had a running time trial in the field that were like commonly used at this sport high school where the study was conducted and we also had like time to exhaustion tests both in running and was in general mode in cross-country skiing and also a test in uh, roll ski skating on a treadmill as a specific test um, for cross-country skiers.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. So, and again, I'm, I'm reflecting now 20 years ago on the studies that that I did. And, it, and again, really you have to appreciate we didn't have really the understanding of the depth of all the different loads and context of even really understanding load. Even though Bannister was around in the 70s, it really wasn't making an equivalent loads across training plans. It really wasn't yeah, we it didn't it didn't occur to us the importance of that. But I'm thinking that that must be just a huge reason why many of those earlier studies missed that. Where basically they're they're seeing improvements in performance many many times because the the actual training load is in, is increased on many yeah. of those high intensity interventions when they're adding high intensity acutely into these programs. There's probably not a, a good a good capture of the overall load. Whereas, again, if correct me if I'm wrong, but in your case, you made the load the same in this repeated measures design, whether it was high volume training or high intensity training. In both both loops through this training intervention, the load was relatively equivalent. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, definitely. So, the, one of the main points here is that if you Match training intensities in a more ecologically valid uh, way. You also see performance improvements following a training intervention study by uh, adopting more low intensity training or volume training. That is a bit different from uh, many previous uh, training intervention studies, um, and yeah. uh, also different or compared to many training uh, intensification studies. That shows, like in good effect of high intensity training over a short time period, we we included a subsequent training period after this eight-week intervention consisting of five weeks of the same training uh, regimes, basically, and the same training intensity distribution for both groups. And then we saw that the, the small benefits in the adaptations, adaptation, such as VO 2 max during the eight-week intervention that we in the high-intensity group, were kind of outbalanced uh, after this uh, five-week subsequent training period. So... Those benefits in visual adaptations seen in a high intensity group were kind of outbalanced quite fast after the intervention. When uh, you included a subsequent period of of training with a sem- similar training intensity distribution. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So the the key message ultimately is, if we look at the groups globally, on average, the me- the main characteristic that leads to the enhanced performance likely is the training load as a as opposed to the distribution of the intensity versus the volume however there were individual responders correct to some almost responding again looking at your data some tended to favor i guess they got a response from low intensity training others tended to get a response from high-intensity training or like when the, when the predominance of that distribution was changed. Would that be sort of the global message of the, of the findings or would, how would you add to that? Hey, everyone. Happy summer to you. Just a quick interruption to let you know that we're running an exclusive sale offer this summer for podcast listeners on any hit science product. Anaerobic Speed Reserve, with Prof. Wand. Maximizing sprint speed with Joseph Coyne full hit science course with Martin and I or any of the 20 individual sport programs. We're going big for you this summer with a massive 40% off to support your professional development. Just use the code TSP40 at checkout for 40% off. Available until the end of summer, so hurry fast. And now back to the podcast.
1: Yeah, definitely. And it's um interesting that you mentioned these uh, individual responses because in many studies we often report like the effects on group level and the mean changes, uh, which we also did in these studies, but we were also uh, interested in uh, showing individual responses that were quite different, showing large variations. So you had athletes in both groups that uh, improved their performance and physiological adaptations, and you have athletes in both groups that did not and you also had some athletes in both groups that also showed them a, a negative training response and a decrease in performance following the training interventions so and you also saw in the low intensity group that there were athletes improving their weight max to the similar extent as the athletes in the high intensity group so clearly there are different uh, individual responses to two different emphasis on high versus low intensity training but uh yeah, at the group level, there were no uh, differences uh, either in physiological adaptations or performance adaptations following these uh, 13 weeks in total, uh, including both the uh, eight-week intervention and the subsequent five-week training period.
0: Very, very cool. It really kind of comes down to the any coaches that are listening out there. To me, it's it's really putting an emphasis on the importance of your your job as a coach to be able to use the art and science to manipulate the training stimulus to be able to get that outcome that you're after. If you put your coaching hat on now, Aruna, how does your findings influence how you practice as a coach? And um, that is probably a tough question, but because it's never, it's never that easy to, to know one way or the other, how an individual is going to respond. But is there a way, like, is it is it more of a kind of a trial and error sort of thing where you would, uh, in terms of funneling those sessions into the right place at the right time, how do you know whether an athlete is a responder to high-intensity training or high-volume training as an emphasis in their program?
1: Hmm. No, that's a really good question. It's, um, I think it shows that there are different ways of uh, improving certain physiological adaptations and improving your endurance performance both by adopting uh, or focusing on volume and uh, high intensity training and uh, also i think it shows that these um, adaptations that you get from high intensity training can be achieved within a quite short time frame so if you emphasize volume in your general preparation period and then when the competition period is um is approaching then you you don't need much time maybe a few weeks to like maximize your performance and physical adaptations by polarizing your intensity distribution a little bit and increasing the emphasis on high intensity training and and speed sessions to like maximize the last last parts for your endurance performance i think uh, that could be something to take out of these studies and uh, Another thing is more like the methodological part, as I said, and interpretation of other research on endurance training. That you should be a bit careful, maybe, of generalizing or interpreting research findings from short-term intervention studies and intensification studies to longer time spans because these uh, differences in adaptations that you see in some studies are maybe. Uh, outbalance just after a few weeks of of uh, normal training again. Yeah.
0: yeah, I mean it's it's quite profound, right? And I mean I'm obviously I got a business called Hit Science with Martin, right? And uh, the bias that that just kind of creates is a real emphasis on the importance of high intensity interval training. But as a coach and of course that we write this all throughout the whole book and chapters, We have Phil Maftone, who's the guru on math training or L2 training or low intensity training and the importance of health and what that contributes. So we try to be as balanced as we can. We recognize that both uh, modes of training are important, but it's maybe the most profound aha moment that I had, um, Rune, was, was just when you look at so many intervention studies and right across population health. Like think of think of population health, all of um, Martin Gabala's Bergmeister's studies on HIT, where they're showing you know that basically sprint interval training over you know with these thirty second maximal bouts, six of them, and you're you're going to improve your your performance and and or your your health. Time bit kind of emphasis on training in the in the global population. You know I guess they're all valid, but it's like it, it's not the be all end all. You can it load at the end of the day improving your movement the amount you move and the variety i guess of adaptations that kind of correspond with that that's that's pretty that's pretty much more the more important thing than the high intensity amount of training itself
1: yeah definitely i would say it uh, it depends on the context and what type of relations you're talking about if you're talking about elite endurance athletes that train 800 to 1200 hours per year, then it's a bit different compared to like a health-related uh, setting with people that are going to uh, to, um, to have a good health and maybe become better after different diseases, then it's different training that matters often. And then you maybe get more benefits of uh, adopting high-intensity training and sprint for training and these type of things that are not necessarily the same principles that are relevant when prescribing training for elite endurance athletes. I'm
0: sure you're familiar with the, I'm going to get a little geeky and go into the David, the classic, this is one sort of started me off, David Costell classic doubling of swim training volume. Do you remember that study where they basically, they the story is, it was in the 70s, I think, but David Costill, he took a bunch of collegiate level swimmers, and I think they were just training, say, maybe once a day or something. And then he increased the training volume to twice a day. He doubled their training swim volume. He didn't really see too much in terms of a performance improvement. Do you have any comments on that study? Do you know the one I'm talking about?
1: Yeah, I think I've seen it once or, but I don't remember the, the details. But the uh...
0: Well, the reason is is it like this kind of you know it's it's interesting how the the first studies influence you know so much of our belief systems right, and I'm even thinking my own research is is probably influenced on hit on hit has influenced a cascade of other researchers and the way we think about training well, David Costill did the same sort of thing for me, and he increased again doubled the training swim volume, and the idea was that you know well, you needed to add high intensity training. On top of the, the the overall swim volume in order to get that kick in performance that we that we all see and um, and that sort of that installed a, a bit of a, a belief system in all of us is that that was the importance of it and then of course you can yeah you can get you can get too much of anything right so yeah of course you know we know that too much high intensity training as well is also one of the factors that leads to overreaching staleness because it's a stress I don't know where I'm going with the question but it's like it's just interesting how you know and again with with you've shown sort of this different context here's already trained well-trained junior cross-country skiers national level and you've increased both and you're really just seeing that the increase in load is the is the main factor that's leading to the to the increased performance where I started was it's interesting that David David and his group didn't see really too much of anything I'm not sure why they didn't, but um because clearly the load was increased. But yeah, anyways, I don't know if you have any comments on that. <laughs> that thought. Yeah, great. sure,
1: sure. And I think it's important to emphasize that the question is not if you should perform low intensity training or high intensity training. Both is needed to develop to maximize visual adaptations and improve endurance performance. But it comes more down to how much high intensity training you should do and how this should be balanced with the Low intensity training and how it should be periodized. and also of course uh, a lot of uh, endurance athletes and elite endurance athletes do uh, quite much volume on moderate intensity training, or they call it uh, or they call it threshold training. So clearly, it's about finding the right balance here between the different uh, intensities and how you should paradise it across the annual training cycle. And uh, from the studies that we've talked about now in my PhD, I think it shows that both methods can be used to uh, to elicit adaptations and improve performance.
0: Yeah. And of course, if you're lining up for, you know, and this, I should ask this, this is probably a, Probably a good segue to the key question that we often ask our experts, such as yourself, is your training philosophy. And of course, probably comes down to, well, what are we targeting, right? Well, we have to work backwards from the performance. And um, maybe with respect to your series of studies was, do you think the performance tests were specific to target an understanding, a signal ultimately, on relative to the emphasis of those either of high volume training or high intensity training in other words you know we always want to make training specific for the performance task at hand correct right so in the context of i don't know the training study were you making those were you making the training relatively specific do you think you would have got a signal that overall performance capacity the ability to perform exercise maximally was being monitored.
1: Yeah, not sure exactly where you.
0: Well, so what were you, your, your performance is a time to exhaustion test, right? Yeah, yeah. Is that so? Is the training that you're that you're doing going to enhance your time to exhaustion?
1: Uh, I think it did in the, in the in the studies. So it's also we didn't have like the uh, actual performance measures on cross country skiing. So it was in in running, either as time to exhaustion in the lab or as a time trial in the field. Um, it was this time to exhaustion test roller scheme in the lab, but we didn't have like an actual performance measure. across the scheme because this was done during the autumn and when the winter started. So it was hard to have like uh, some good uh, competitions at the same or relatively same conditions outside. So... I think that's an limitation, uh, and also when you perform a lot of uh, high intensity training all sessions, like it was three minute uh, stages, four minute stages, five minute stages, and interval sessions, you also train towards performing better at this time to exhaustion test in the lab. I think you can argue. So uh, yeah, I think that could be seen as a small limitation.
0: Yep, for sure, and. So the one thing that is consistent that you showed with your high intensity group or no, your high intensity intervention, because it was repeated measures, you showed an increase in the VO2 max score. So the amount of oxygen that they're able to uptake and transport to the muscles, the VO2 max score was higher in the high intensity training round, right? With that intervention. So that is one thing that is consistent. In other words, yeah uh, the principle of specificity holds true in that context would you yeah. not agree
1: yeah definitely true yeah it seems like uh, the high intensity training uh, clearly has some some beneficial effects on like like tasking the cardiovascular system for example and enhancing aerobics as yeah, also exactly. been shown in live water uh, training specification studies
0: yeah totally and you think of like so we've had some really cool podcasts, Steve Neal, Steven Seiler, talk a lot about the importance of the, really the underappreciated respiratory system itself. You think of what you're doing in a high intensity session. You are, you're ultimately doing almost some respiratory muscle training, you know, large inspiratory uh, work, large expiratory work, right? And you're actually targeting specifically that um, and both are going to enhance the ability to ventilate the lungs, remove dead space, and and overall in, improve that, you know, uh, delivery of oxygen to the um, to the working muscles. So um, yeah, it's it's just it's cool that you sort of at the very least you we can we, we can know that the principle of specificity holds true, and that is a, a beneficial aspect of incorporating high intensity training uh, in your, in your training diet, so to speak, yep. right?
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: definitely. So Runa, maybe that's a very long winded way of getting to that key question. If do you have, again, with your coaching hat on, with your athlete hat on, uh, you know, you're working in, in your high performance setting, where do you sort of start with, um, when you get a new athlete in, when you want to, uh, enhance their performance, what's your methodology or philosophy, of, of training for them imagine a new superstar kind of comes in and they they're part of your group now and they've been targeted so how are you going to how do you begin your process with them of um, of, of bringing this this kid up to um, to become a world performer
1: yeah well that's a good and interesting question and um, could be a bit hard to, to answer briefly but I think you need to start with understanding the the sport the competitive demands of the sport what type of demands are is this training going to target and then you need to do some kind of analysis of this athlete and the different like capacities that athletes uh, athlete has and see that in in connection with the demands of the sport and try to do like kind of a gap uh, analysis on that also like provides certain um, priorities for the training and the training process so yeah, start with these things together with the goal that the athlete or the group of athletes has. And then you need to start planning uh, the training by training content, how the training load should be, the training intensity, training intensity distribution, and, of course, how this should be paradised across the annual training cycle. I think you start there. And then, of course, you need to do the uh, most important part that is to conduct the training, have sufficient training quality and a goal of each session the type of capacities that you should develop and I think that's the most important part how you conduct your training and training sessions and then you need to have kind of a, a system in place to, to monitor this process so both like day to day monitoring uh, but also more like uh, different standardized sessions, physiological tests at certain time points during the annual training cycle to see how the, uh, the athlete progress and um, if things are going in the in the right or uh, or the wrong direction and then do adjustments in the training accordingly based on how you perform on these different tests and standardized sessions. I think that's uh, a key and be able to to evaluate and uh, adjust during the the process.
0: Yeah, that's cool. You're ultimately, similar to your study, you're running your own N of one experiment, aren't you? Like you're trying to create a relatively closed loop system, um, a feedback system. Yeah. And of course it's half closed and half open. And that's again, the art and science of coaching, I think. Definitely. How is um, to, for the closed loop part, what are the tools that you're generally using in the cross country skiing context?
1: Yeah, it's a little bit different, but uh, on a day to day basis, it's like physiological monitoring of training sessions with uh, heart rate monitors, uh, low lactate uh, measurements during certain sessions, different uh, RPE you can use as subjective measures. I think that's what's mostly used from a day-to-day basis and maybe also some daily parameters in the training diary of resting heart rate, maybe some heart rate variability, yeah, score on wellness, sleep quality, etc. But more in the longer term, it's uh, typically standardized sessions uh, often it's in the laboratory either as running or roller skiing because it's a bit hard to do standardized sessions and tests outside in cross-country skiing because you don't have a good measure on external intensity as you have in running and cycling. So then you're maybe more needed to get in the lab to do these standardized sessions and tests and typically the, uh, many cross-country skiers at the national team already perform uh, blood lactate profiles in running just as an not necessarily to look at performance development, but to, to look at how they respond to training and uh, and do adjustments accordingly, depending on how they respond on this blood lactate profiles, looking at the relationship between speed, heart rate, RPE, blood lactate. And then maybe yeah, three to four or five times per year, you also do more uh, full-scale physiological testing. But, um low-lactic profiling, followed by an incremental test and also measure a bit max. Mm-hmm. So that's more like the system around to quality ensure the training process, I would say. And it's quite commonly to, to do.
0: That's cool. I think, um, I remember Oiven has been part of a, basically a calculation that, that gets an indication of, call it power. On cross-country skiing, because of course, in yep. cross-country skiing, you think of when you're gliding and whatnot. You can be moving quite quickly, right? Even like, uh, and really, the the metabolic intensity, the internal load can be quite quite low. So you can artificially have this high perceived speed, which isn't appropriate necessarily. So how do you calc- how do you do that? Remind us how you do that in
1: cross-country skiing.
0: I'm, I'm fascinated personally on that.
1: Yeah, you can do it out uh, in the field skiing as well, but it's most valid to do it in the lab, and then you, you can uh, calculate kind of work rate using uh, the work you do against the friction and gravity in the lab, and you, you measure the friction on the roller skis that you're doing. Then you divide that by the metabolic rate and how much it costs to, to ski uh, uh, against that gravity and, uh, and speed, and you get kind of um, the efficiency of the skier. So you have both like W to max, and you have uh, some measure on fractional utilization, and in addition you have uh, efficiency. So you kind of have three parameters fitting the uh, uh, corner model. Yeah,
0: that's cool. And can you can you take much of that as well and come back to the you know even the GPS and the elevation profile to be getting a surrogate of power on your output on your file on your training peaks or whatever
1: equivalent? Yeah. You know? It's not developed any good systems for doing that skiing in the field yet because it's, you need like a good measure on the f- snow friction, which is kind of difficult to measure. And it also changes depending on the weather conditions, and etc. So it's, it's not uh, any valid method to like measure the external intensity of skiing outside yet. So it's mostly based on internal measures. Like heart rate, blood lactate like measurements, and some RPE. but it's also been done a lot of work in cross-country skiing using sensor technology, both and GPS and IMU to understand the competitive demands of cross-country skiing, and it's been quite a lot of emphasis on pacing, pacing strategies in cross-country skiing over the last years uh, using uh, GPS and sensor technology. That has uh, yeah, show that it's most likely beneficial to adopt a more even pacing on a lap-to-lap basis in cross-country skiing as well, as you see, for example, in running. Of course, in within a lap uh, in cross-country skiing, you have like a micro-pacing pattern due to the constant changes in speed and terrain and speed. But if you compare the laps that they are doing, if you have three laps on a 10-kilometer, it seems beneficial to have uh, a more even pacing, what, compared to what has been done before, with uh, many skiers adopting more positive pacing with decreased speeds throughout the competition.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's cool. So maybe this is a good segue. You've got we've covered high intensity training, we've covered high volume training, we've covered your training philosophy, we've covered the tools that you use. Maybe the last one um key point and it relates to your your other important paper that you sent me, and that is what happens when the feedback system and the athlete is telling you that they're they are underperforming and they're going so you know we have the, the context is that we have an already established athlete and he's made it to the top level. And now all of a sudden we have stagnation of training yeah. of training and we're going backwards. And we see this we see this often in sport. It doesn't matter the, the, the endurance code, running, cycling, cross-country skiing, etc. cetera, triathlon. This happens. And what are the tools that we can use? And um, maybe I'll back up a, a bit and you, I'll just let you talk about this, uh, this case study paper. I believe it was published in Frontiers. It's excellent. Uh, it's very detailed. I loved reading it. It made me think of my own practices. So why don't you take us through that paper?
1: Yeah, No, it's a case study that we published in January this year on a Norwegian male world-class cross skier with the title, The Return from Underperformance to Sustainable World-Class Level, a case study of a male cross skier. It's based on a project that we did in, starting in the... Uh, winter spring 2021 with a cross country skier in norway that uh, experienced two seasons of underperformance or unexplained underperformance uh, syndrome so we had uh two seasons that uh didn't uh, work that well and uh, as he had um, wanted it to do so i also it resulted in that he, he lost his place on the national team and he needed to like find a new team and support staff and coach and etc so we started this this process uh, i think it was four persons involved in a team with him in yeah, april 2021 when he started and um, then the result of this process uh, was that he came back to the world class level in cross-country skiing and back to the national team and is uh, still there today and doing quite well. So we thought this was, yeah, interesting process and wanted to, to do a case study on it that we published that Ron like kind of retrospectively describes his training over ten years as a senior athlete in cross-country skiing, including two years of underperformance, and we tried to like detect the possible contributing factors to this underperformance. And then it was a second part, or prospective part, describing the the process of returning to world class level and describing all the different uh, interventions that we did to to get him back in a more functional state.
0: Yeah. So again, and maybe this is this story has a happy ending. Not all stories do. I've I've heard of many retirements that happen in these sorts of circumstances. This. Athlete was obviously very motivated to find in different way um, because he knew he was he was formerly at this high level and he must have taken a, uh, something upon himself to find the help that he needed and see what was wrong with his system and um, so it, it was very convenient that you guys had already m- measured all these various different things maybe to cut to the chase what are what are the key things that the discovery process found, and then you rectified to return this athlete to his former uh, high-level self.
1: Yeah, it was a uh, different thing, so like in, in a holistic process, but um, in the two years where he like experienced his underperformance and also partly in the year or two before, he adopted quite an extreme training regime. Um, he Trained quite a lot, but also added other stress loads. Uh, one of them were training with low carbohydrate ability, which is like a quite common method uh, across or in different endurance sports, and there's quite some literature on that topic. And he um, performed that, but maybe he took it a bit too uh, much to the towards the extreme. So. He had a lot of training sessions uh, with low carbohydrate ability, including some long duration, low intensity training sessions, like with skipping breakfast and don't like including any carbohydrate during the training session. So, that was one thing that probably led to this stage. And another thing was he also adopted this uh, common training method with uh, to performing to moderate intensity interval sessions per day, like this double threshold training, which is quite common in uh, in running now these days. And so this was two things that he adopted, which resulted in quite an extreme training process. And there were also some other factors uh, coinciding with this, like uh, he um, there was maybe a bit lack of training prioritization, uh, lack of monitoring system to... To see if uh, how this training process was was going. So also maybe a bit lack of uh, follow up by coaches on a daily basis outside of training camps, and also a bit too less emphasis on uh, on technique training. So this was more secondary things, but the primary things with uh, the extreme approach of training with low carbohydrate ability, probably in addition to performing this. Double threshold session and all these things together led uh, probably led to this um, state of underperformance. And if it was like a state of overtraining syndrome or a rat's relative energy deficiency in sport, it's a bit hard to say. It wasn't like diagnosed with any of these two syndromes, but it's it doesn't exist like a good, valid tool to diagnose someone with these syndromes either. So, somewhere. In these two states, he probably uh, was during these two seasons. So that was the main factors that we identified as uh, potential contributing factors. Yeah,
0: that's perfect. Great summary. I kind of reflect reflect on a lot of things with what you said and reading the study. But the first one is kind of I, I moved towards Phil Maftone's Chapter 7 in Hit Science. And the, the overarching conclusion of this one is, is basically that you know you have stress comes in so many different forms and when you get your stress wrong you eventually get to the whether it's you know overreaching overtraining maladaptation we call it what we want we don't really it's it, it's not a whatever you want to call it we've all got this hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis in the middle of your brain is basically this integrator that's talking to the endocrine system, and it's talking to the, ner- the nervous system, and it's incorporating everything. And too much stress of anything is going to, it leads us astray, and we, yeah, we, um, we start to not function well. And uh, of course, we need that stress, and then the, the adaptation from it to make improvements so it's a it's we all it's this tightrope that we all walk but clearly in this case with this elite performer he fell off the tightrope and he, he fell over and um he just put too much stress into the system it's interesting i actually wasn't clear the fact that he used the let's call it the so-called norwegian method right the threshold the threshold yeah. training the 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 popular Norwegian method that everyone's talking about. And yeah. even the Norwegian method, you can get too much of a good thing. And then again, my, to my bias, and most people listening to the podcast know that we talk a lot about metabolic flexibility, the importance of uh, not sabotaging your glycemic uh, system, ultimately, the insulin glucose sort of uh, pathway. And that, that can be out of whack as well. I know that fasted training sessions done by many of successful athletes that I train. And this has been done since the 60s or 70s in Tour de France racers and stuff, right? But not twice a week as, as this guy was kind of doing. Yeah. So it's, it, this guy was just, he was a real, as the mentality is in so many of our elite performers, we often think more must be better, right? If you have uh, one stress and, and it's going to lead to a benefit, then more must be better. But of course, we know that that's, um, yeah, that's, that's not the case, isn't it?
1: Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, it's complex and uh, multifactorial, um, of course. And it's not uh, overreaching, overtraining syndrome, whatever you would call it. It's not necessarily like the training per se that is the main driving factor, but it's like too much of other stressful as the case for this athlete. Uh, I don't think it's training... With low carbohydrate ability per se, or these uh, double threshold sessions per se, that is like the main cause. But it's it's just a sum of, of stressors over time were too much uh, for him to to handle that add him into into this state of um, of underperformance.
0: Yeah, I love that, and that and stress can come in so many different factors too that are completely away from the training itself, right? So even definitely. If- even it could be things like um, I don't know what the you know the uh, the emotional capacity and situation was with this individual, right? But if if he is having issues in family and with partners and friends and business or work, these are all different stressor factors as well that that all kind of go into the um to to the mind. Um, nutrition is a huge one too, right? Um, I think that was one of the things in the other case study. That the guru did, I believe, for her PhD. Yeah, well, yeah. um, that was study. if you, yeah, yeah I, I know you you reference that case study. Um, yeah. The I for, uh, sorry, I've forgotten the name of the the legendary um, cross country yeah. skier, female cross country
1: yeah.
0: yeah, but she, so she was, she totally tidied up her diet as one of the factors that that reversed her away from her underperformance as well, too. So there's again, the key thing is that. Stress comes in so many different forms. You've got to figure out what stressor you're getting sort of too much of and you've got to figure out a way to get a more balanced approach as sort of where we started with this whole podcast with your studies are sort of showing you, we need a balance of all these different things of, of low-intensity training, of high-intensity training, of proper nutrition, of good sleep and all these sorts of things, right? So, mm. yeah. Yeah,
1: that's true. Yes, I, I love
0: the fact that you that you that you took this guy back. So maybe maybe go there. So what were the things? How did you start to have conversations with this individual? You or your or your coaching team, and what was the process in returning him back to this performance? And maybe take us where he's at his he's at his wits end. You know he's in tears, and he he wants to kind of come back. What are the give me the process that that brought him back, please?
1: Yeah. It was like a support team of four persons. So one, like a main coach, highly uh, experienced uh, Norwegian cross-country skiing coach, and was um, another assistant coach, and also a master student in exercise physiology. And then it was uh, me and an in this uh, support team, and uh, started with using good time uh, to try to go through his training, what he have been doing over the last two two seasons, and. Try to detect these possible contributing factors, and then subsequently it was about having or uh, introducing intervention that targeted these potential contributing factors. So, for example, when we saw that there was a lack of training periodization, then we introduced like a clear microcycle periodization. Uh, the carbohydrate uh, or low carbohydrate ability training was seen as an driving factor of this, so therefore, like all training without with uh, low carbohydrate ability was uh, was removed from his uh, training process. and We saw a need for like better like systems around to to monitor the training process and to see how you responded to the training you performed, and we also saw a need for a closer follow up on a daily basis. Uh, so we had uh, this assistant coach that was helping him on daily training sessions. Uh, where he uh, lives in uh, in Norway. So, yeah, that was basically the main interventions that we did, and like training philosophy were based on mitigating risk. So, like training is about like kind of a risk management to find the right ratio between risk and benefit, both in the short term and the long term. So, we wanted to like reduce the risks of his training take less risk, but have the same benefit, or maybe over time, better benefit. So to take away these extreme training sessions, these low-intensity long, uh, long sessions, and, and having better intensity control during low-intensity sessions, and also doing threshold sessions was part of it. And by lowering risk during training, uh, he also uh, improved his uh, like, training consistency. And uh, had a training process that were definitely more sustainable over time. So I think that was like an important uh, take home message from this, which also hopefully can be adopted to other cases and maybe in training in general. I think that's a really important principle. Yeah.
0: You know, it's interesting. The one, the one thing that I didn't really pick up when I was re- reading the case study, but I only get it from listening to you now is the the fact that you brought in this assistant coach that was able to give? Obviously, the head coach he's got probably got I don't know fifty or hundred athletes under him in the whole program or whatever, right? I don't know what it is, but it's it's too much to handle at the end of the day. But the assistant coach is coming in, and he is there, he or she is there to give that I don't know caring feedback. The athlete is yeah. they're being held a little bit, you know, and they're being taken care of. The athletes obviously under the under the wing of this assistant coach. They're getting the um, the attention that they want, Um, and that makes such a difference. I think in um, in making
1: forward progress. Definitely, we're more uh, like had better follow up doing daily training. And this assistant coach saw him doing training, helped him with intensity control, helped him with uh, taking uh, some videos, uh, helped him with technical feedback, and. Working with these um, different technical assignments, and I think together uh, this increases the quality of the uh, daily training sessions that are being performed. And that's in the end, that's what matters the most. Yeah, because training's more meaningful almost.
0: Imagine being the athlete themselves, right? Imagine being that athlete, right? And all of a sudden, they're getting this attention mm. and this care, and they're putting a lot of. I think you mentioned it, meaning to those sessions. And you also mentioned the purposefulness of the, of the training itself, right? Like, you know, we talk volume, we talk, we talk intensity, uh, we talk high intensity, all these sorts of things. All of it doesn't really matter unless you bring meaning into why we're doing that session. That session has a purpose. This is why you're doing that session, right? We should not even be saying that a long fasted ride or training session can be bad Because in a certain context, it can be very purposeful. There could be a meaning for why you're doing that session. Let's take for the context of a of someone that is metabolically inflexible and they need to work on develop that. Of course, with anything, as we demonstrate here, you get too much of a of a good thing, it goes to being to being bad. But importantly, that's really, really kind of a cool one on the training process that I wasn't I wasn't appreciating is the care that you, that you brought into this athlete and the purposefulness, the meaning that that athlete was then to be able to, to bring to all of those, all of those sessions. So very, very cool. Rune.
1: Yeah, clearly uh, that's uh, important. And it also, I think it contributed uh, to um, that the, the athlete had I a mean, good ownership to the training and he believed in the training process at least after some time and he saw that it, uh, it worked and he responded well to it and he got a strong belief that this was the way to to go and the, the right to the training prescribed and like the adaptations that you get from training is it's not only like a result of the physiological and mechanical load but it's also like a result of your mental state and how you like believe in it and uh, i think that's maybe as important as the training prescribed that you really believe in your method.
0: So well said. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. Belief effect. Yeah. I think, yeah. David Martin, taught me that. Yeah. If the athlete yeah, believes in yeah, the training, it
1: just yeah. makes
0: all the difference. It's really
1: interesting. Hmm.
0: Maybe that's a good point. We're gonna have, we're coming up to the hour and um, I, I'd like to, we've done, we've covered so many different cool things. And now it's like, yeah, what's the, What's the future hope for you? I know you're doing a postdoc now in a pretty cool topic. Why don't you tell us a little bit about bit about that and where you where you hope to be going with your research program?
1: Involved in different projects. Uh, it's it's uh, still uh, endurance training, some cross country skiing, of course, some uh, field analysis, uh, and continue with that. But it's also most of the postdoc is like emphasized towards the uh, non functional. Endurance athlete or underperformance endurance athlete. So it's kind of a work that continues based on this case study that we discussed now. uh, Looking at, uh, yeah, now I'm planning to and soon to be starting at uh, a study that is going to look at uh, sex differences in physiological responses and markers of training stress and energy ability to training overload. So there are some training overload studies in the literature before, but it's it's none um, of them that's really included. If there's any potential differences between between sexes and how they respond to increased training load, and how physiological uh, measures and markers on training stress is affected. And you also know that probably many of these cases with overreaching, overtraining um, could be confounded by like a, f- a failure to detect uh, low energy ability, or even a diagnosis of REDs. So try to see this overreaching, overtraining part uh, together with uh, low energy ability and Reds is uh, a project that we are uh, are working on, and soon starting to collect some data. So that's uh, the yeah, largest project that I'm working on now, and hopefully there will also be some more work in. Within this topic of uh, underperformance and non-functional endurance athletes, because yeah, often we are emphasised towards like the training, performance development, how to find the the best methods to to maximise uh, adaptations and performance. But we often ignore that there are are different responses to endurance training as we discussed, them. Often there are also athletes that don't respond and and get into these different states of. Non-respond- not responding to training anymore and develops uh, states of overtraining training or reds and uh, these things
0: yeah no i couldn't agree more and um again going back to what we were speaking about about training stress other stressors nutrition stress reds all those sorts of things right they're all it's all a stress it also makes me reflect on the study that we're getting we're coming to a close now at, at athletica many many are aware where we've been doing a, um, basically a hormonal profile in comparison with training load of Athletica users. And this is in collaboration with MiraCare, the fertility tracker, basically an Athletica user discovered that he could kind of use the same sort of markers in the fertility tracker to be able to, um, to get insight into the gonadal hormones that are linked, of course, to the, the HPA axis, right? So yeah. Yeah, estrogen, progesterone, um, yeah. and all these sorts of things. So yeah, may, um, if you want, uh, you know, outside of this call Renee, we can, yeah, you might be interested in the um, in the in the Miracare team and potentially using this non-invasive marker. It's basically just a urinary sample morning, and it's almost like um, if you look at heart rate variability. Remember where that marker used to be a long, long time ago,
1: mm-hmm. where
0: you were just getting a morning measure to get insight into your morning HRV. I think, I think we're sort of at the same stage here where we're just, we're on a bit of a fishing experiment in the research as it has to sort of begin to, to get insight into these, into these um, hormonal markers and uh, it's fascinating what we're, what we're sort of finding. We'll, we'll bring someone on in the future to, to talk about these preliminary studies. But um, there's n- make no mistake about it, there's definitely something there. Stress is the big player at the end of the day. But you can get insight into how that stress is affecting a female due to that really cool vital sign that's avail- available to them through that marker.
1: Yeah, sure. That's definitely interesting and something that I would like to... Hear more about it's uh, one of the main areas of research for our research group now is like the, the female athlete, female endurance athlete. So um, we're also having uh, more more projects um, in that field. Excellent. Well,
0: Renee, I think we've covered. Um, we, well, yeah, we've done it pretty well, mate. So, um, uh, is there anything else you would like to uh, like to tell our guests?
1: No, but I think we covered the studies that we discussed prior to today that we were going to, uh, to talk about so that was uh, was interesting and again thank you for uh, reaching out and inviting me to to have a good talk about uh, my work and, uh, and a little bit uh, applied uh, the applied side of it as well
0: uh, it's a pl- absolute pleasure it's incredible work you're doing we're really grateful for, for having you on where can people find out more about you if they want to want to get in touch I mean,
1: yeah, I have a profile on ResearchGate, so you can probably find my work there. And also on Twitter, you can probably find my account if you search for it. I'm not that active there as many other sports scientists, but uh, you can find me there and send me a message if there's if there's anything. Yeah, perfect, perfect.
0: Well, we'll include that in the show notes. Maybe your Twitter account as
1: well. And um, yeah.
0: and yeah, and again, great job super work and all the best to you and your team over there and the the important research that you guys are doing.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Hey there, training science enthusiasts. If you like what you just heard, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at hitscience to keep up with our latest. And if you want to take your knowledge to the next level, visit our website to check out our full online course and textbook on the science and application of high-intensity interval training. Now, if you're a university, club, or sports organization, we've got special packages available for you and your team. Just contact us at info@hitscience.com. And if you want to join our evolution as a field and take your application even further, be sure to check out the HIT Science Technology Platform, Athletica visit athletica.ai or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at athletica underscore AI. Thanks for listening.